Okay, we're in Daniel chapter number 11 tonight, and um, last week we were looking in chapter 10 at uh, uh, Daniel's prayer. He was up in age, he was still in, well, he was still in the land of captivity, but the captivity had ceased. Uh, the Israelites were returning back to Israel, and he wasn't able to go because, of course, he was up in age and, and different things. The journey would be too much for him, and he's getting word back from uh from Jerusalem and how things were there, and he's concerned about uh, the peoples they're returning, and uh, there's so much work left to be done. There's uh, so many negative things that he has heard through these uh, prophecies that's been given to him. He knows there's going to be trouble and trying times and uh, all these different concerns that was on his heart, and so he began praying about it, and he was wanting some clarity, I believe. He was wanting some encouragement. He was praying on behalf of the people. And it says that he was uh, over 21 days in waiting for an answer. And in his prayer, we, uh, in the response to his prayer, we see uh, a lot about spiritual warfare that was going on, that there was a, uh, a wicked spiritual entity over the realm that was hindering his prayer from being answered, and that the angels were going about and they were carrying out uh, God's will behind the scenes. And so whenever Daniel was looking and he was seeing uh, kingdoms and rulers and men, he didn't realize that there was behind all of those things, there was a spiritual battle that was taking place. But we find that uh, he gets reassurance here that God ultimately is in control and that he's winning over it. And it really combats the, the thought that people have today that good and evil is a dichotomy or that they are equal opposites, Okay. You'll have in many different religions and cultures this idea that you have good on one side, you have bad on the other side, and they are like equal opposite forces in an eternal spiritual tug of war, right? In, uh, in the Asian cultures, the Eastern cultures, you have the idea of the yin and the yang, the black and the white, the two equal opposing forces that are wrestling. And that's not what we're finding in Scripture because we find that... Uh, God is able with just the words of his mouth to put it all uh, put it all away, to finish it all, to complete every bit of it. One of these days, whenever the Lord comes back, uh, the devil is going to have his armies to meet Christ whenever he returns. And it says that the Lord is going to dis destroy all of them with the sword that proceeds out of his mouth. And so all of the saints are going to come back with him, and we're going to be there to witness this, but we're not going to have to fight, we're not going to have to battle but instead, whenever it says the sword that proceeds out of his mouth, that's talking about his very words. If he spoke all things into existence, the very world in which we are uh, inhabiting now, the universe that we're in, all of the galaxies, all the different things that's going on, if he spoke all of those into existence, uh, Satan is just a gnat buzzing around his ear, okay? That would be a more proper way of uh, envisioning this. But we get confused as humans trying to figure out why does God allow Satan to exist? And we find that even through what we looked at last week, that even whenever Satan and his forces are at work trying to corrupt mankind and this earth and God's creation, that God is taking all of those things, rolling them into his greater picture and his greater plan, and he is making his will be done. And so as Daniel was troubled and he was concerned about all these things that was going on, God gives him a vision of himself 
and then sends a messenger to reassure him that even though it looks like uh, the bad guys can be winning at times, even though it looks like maybe God is nowhere around, that God is very much in control. He's very much uh, active in the things that are going on, and he's working it all out according to his plan and his will. And so as Daniel was engaging in this and feeling the burden of all of these things, almost as if he had to carry this burden himself, God was revealing to him that uh, he didn't need to take so much upon himself. Okay, remember I said Daniel was so burdened down about it, and he was fasting and he was mourning and lamenting, almost as if the responsibility for his people was upon his shoulders. And then whenever we see this vision that's uh, given to Daniel in chapter number 10, we realize that uh, it's not for him to bear. Uh, he saw in this his weakness. He saw in it his inability. And it was the Lord that came to him and strengthened him time and time again. Daniel didn't even have the ability to speak. He didn't have the words to say until the Lord came and touched him and gave him the words to say. And that puts us in our proper place because we think Daniel the prophet, what a, a mighty man he was standing in the gap there in Babylon. But he was nothing unless God strengthened him, unless God gave him the words, unless God gave him the abilities. And so it puts us in perspective of where we fit in all of this. Okay? And so we don't want to take too much upon ourselves and think that it's up to us to save the world. We're not God. And this is something that uh, we have to remind ourselves regularly whenever we're dealing with, uh, whether we're trying to be a witness, we're trying to raise our children, we're trying to talk to people around us, all these different things going on. We can't be God in somebody else's life. We can't make anybody else do anything. And it's not our responsibility. And so there's a saying that I heard a good while ago, and I have to repeat it to myself once in a while. And it's the fact that he is God and I am not. Okay? He is God and I am not. And so I guess that's a way that we could kind of sum up Daniel's vision and his dream that he, or not his dream, but his vision and his prayer from last week is God was showing him himself. He was showing him that he was on the throne. He says, I am God and you are not. Okay? And so this week, we're going to be looking into Daniel chapter number 11. And Daniel chapter 11 is actually an incredible chapter. It's one that you're probably not going to spend a lot of time in reading. It's one of them that uh, would kind of fall in line with Leviticus and Deuteronomy a lot of the times. It's going to have a lot of things that you're just going to say, well, this doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I'm going to move past it. But it's an incredible chapter because in Daniel chapter number 11, there is over 100 fulfilled prophecies. One chapter, 100 fulfilled prophecies, okay? And as we look at this, uh, if we look at it with the wrong perspective, it is boring, okay? Because these are fulfilled prophecies. They fall into uh, in the line of history from our perspective, okay? Does anyone here like history? Whenever you went through school, did you like reading about history? The girls and I, we were discussing history. They like reading about battles and ships and sinking ships and asking me all kinds of questions that I can't answer. Okay? And so with that, some people like history, some people don't. So I asked that kind of gauging a little bit my audience, okay? Because I can go in and I can give you names and dates, okay? Or I can just tell the story. <laughs> so that's kind of the two different ways that we can go on this. But as we're looking at this, we're going to look at the first 20 verses, I believe, okay, of Daniel chapter number 11. And I'm not going to read the verses ahead of time. Usually I'll read 
uh, the passage ahead of time, but I'm going to go verse by verse and read one verse at a time, and then we're going to look at an explanation of it, okay? Does that work for everybody? So that's what we're going to do tonight, and I'm going to try not to bore you with this, but here's the thing. Daniel was writing this long before it ever came to pass. Some of the first prophecies that we're going to see in this uh, began at about 20, 30 years after Daniel wrote it down, and then it continued forward another four or 500 years after he wrote it. And then as we get to the end of chapter number 11, it's things that regard the Antichrist in the time of the tribulation, things that haven't happened yet. And with that being said, remember I said there's already 100 that's been fulfilled already. So there's still some that, won't, that haven't been yet. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay, so Daniel was writing this, and he wrote it with so much precision. Remember I said that uh, the, the critics and the skeptics have said that Daniel had to have been written after the fulfillment of the prophecies because of how exact his prophetic descriptions was. But the thing is that Daniel was accepted as part of the Jewish canon of Scripture. Okay, the canon is the accepted, uh, the books, the accepted writings according to the Jews. And Daniel was already accepted into the canon of Scripture long before these were fulfilled. Most of the, the prophecies, and oh, excuse me, not most of the prophecies, most of the canon of Scripture was settled around the time of Ezra the prophet. You know, Ezra and Nehemiah, remember that? Ezra was a scribe. He was responsible. He was the keeper of the books. He was the keeper of the roles. He was the one who came with Nehemiah, and he taught the people all of the prophecy and all of the law before his time. So for him to be teaching it, he had to have already a solid and formed body of literature to be teaching from, right? For me to come and say, okay, I'm going to be teaching you God's word. I need to know what it is. And so Ezra the scribe was one of the ones who was responsible for formulating the canon of Scripture all the way back in Nehemiah's day and Ezra's day, uh, all the way back uh, just right after Daniel's day. And they accepted Daniel's writings as canon. And they didn't do that lightly. They had many qualifications that a book, a writing had to meet before it became canon, before it became Scripture. Not only that, it had been solidified, it had been uh, accepted by the Jews and copied out and translated, and plenty of evidence, plenty of uh, historical record that we could go back and look at by about 208, or excuse me, 200 BC, okay? And some of the prophecies from Daniel, this is whenever it was accepted, it was formed into the book form, it was copied out. Uh, it was translated into other languages, all those things, by 200 B.C., and some of these prophecies that we're going to be reading about didn't take place until about 160 B.C. So it was accepted as Jewish scripture, copied over and over by the scribes that were meticulous, and translated into other languages before it was fulfilled. Okay? So for those who would say this can't be uh, actual prophecy because of how uh, precise it is, they have no leg to stand on, okay? And so I go through all of that, not to put you to sleep, but to let you know 
that Daniel is prophecy. And so we're reading it and we can go back and we can pinpoint people and dates and occasions and all these different things that took place that fulfilled it. And we can read it as historical fact. But whenever Daniel was putting this, pinning it onto paper, it was before any of it had taken place. And so the reason I'm stressing this is because this should uh, strengthen our faith in God's word. And this passage, this chapter in Daniel should be a huge faith builder for us with the understanding that history checks it out, that the critics and the skeptics can try to reject it, but they don't even have a leg to stand on. It's one of the ones that the critics and the skeptics uh, struggle greatly with because of how accurate and how precise it is. So for us as Christians, whenever we say, well, can we really know that the Word of God is true? Can we really know that this is of God? Can we really trust the Bible? Hopefully, as we go down through this and see how exact and how precise this is, you can say, okay, Daniel didn't make this up. Somebody else didn't write it after the fact. This is God's Word to His people. Another thing that I want to look at with this is why did God give this to Daniel? Why did God lay this out to him and tell him this ahead of time? Now, we talked about this a little bit last week, but after uh, Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, after Malachi laid down his pen and he quit writing, there was a period of silence that took place. There was no prophets, no prophecy, no new scripture, nothing from the time that Malachi laid down his pen to the time that uh, um, Zechariah heard from God whenever he went into the temple at the Annunciation of John the Baptist, right? And so that was a 400-year period of silence where the Jews are back in their homeland, but they are constantly being overran by enemies. They are constantly being plundered. They're constantly being used as a battlefield, basically. And so they're wondering, is God there? We're not hearing anything from him. He sure seems like he's been silent. Where is he at? Has he forgotten about us? Has he left us behind? And what God has done through this is he has told them what's going to happen during that 400-year period before it happened. It's one of those things that if they were astute, if they were paying attention to Daniel's writings, it was just as current as the morning paper. They could read through chapter number 11, and they could pinpoint and say, we're right here. That would be pretty cool, wouldn't it? And so if you're going through and you're a Jew in uh, that time living in Israel, and you've got Daniel's writings, and situations are going on around you, and you see an event happen, and you can go down and say, well, that was verse number five. Wouldn't that be neat? And so we can also draw a little bit of application for us. Not only is it for us to build faith in God's word, but it's also to build faith in his prophecies because there's still plenty of prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled. And so we're setting in Daniel's place on those, right? We're still looking future tense. And so people will try to figure out what's going to go on in the future, what's going to happen with this world. Uh, I was talking with someone the other day. I can't remember, was, I can't remember who it was. But I was talking with someone, and we were discussing all these different events happening in the world. And I said, well, at least we don't have to worry about these because the Bible says 
this. I think I was talking with the girls with history and different things, talking about mutually uh, assured destruction, right? That's the idea that nuclear powers in the world won't blow each other up because if Russia nukes the United States, the United States nukes Russia, and then the whole world ends up getting destroyed, right? Mutually assured destruction. And there's a lot of people who are afraid of that. We were watching a TV show. They were building houses out of bomb shelters. Okay? And so we're looking at that. We're saying, okay, we don't have to worry about that because we see how the story goes in Scripture. We see what the Bible says is going to happen, and we don't kill ourselves out. We don't annihilate the planet through a nuclear holocaust. There might be some of that going on later on, but we don't have to worry about that, right? But anyway, I'm getting sidetracked. Um, so we can have an assurance that God's going to fulfill prophecy. We look at the, the things that he is promising, and as we look around in the world, we get perplexed, right? Daniel was seeing all of these things that was going on around him, and he was seeing uh, even the things that were prophesied, and he's like, okay, God, this troubles me. This makes me worried because of the situation the world's in. We look around and we see the way the world is. Then we look at God's word and say, he's got a plan. He's in charge. He knows what he's doing. And so we can pillow our head at night and we can rest in assurance that God's in control. Okay, that's a huge thing for us. So it builds, uh, builds faith in God's word. It builds faith in God's ability. It builds faith in the future that he has planned for us. Right? And so at the end of the day, as Daniel is concerned for the Jewish people, we find that all of these things show that God is orchestrating things around his people, has a plan for his people, and was going to take care of them through all of it. So essentially speaking here, he says, you may not escape the storm, you may not have the storm to end, but I'm going to bring you through it, and I'm going to bring about my plan through it, right? And so for those who just want God to give them peace or ease or take away their problems, that's not how God works, but he does give us assurance that he goes through us or through it with us and has a plan for it and will prosper us in the end, right? Okay, so I better get to Daniel chapter 11. We ended chapter 10 with the angel talking to Daniel and chapter 11, if you don't read it in context, you don't know who's speaking because it says, also I in the first year of Darius, who's I? She says, Daniel, who's I? Any other suggestions? It's one of the angels. He was speaking at the end of it. Verse 21 of chapter 10. But I will show thee that which is noted in scripture of truth. And there is none that holdeth uh, with me in these things, but Michael, your prince. Also, I, in the first year of Darius the Mede, even I stood to confirm and strengthen him. Okay? <laughs> so what was going on was this angel is, re is giving Daniel a sneak peek behind the scenes in spiritual warfare. And he says, just so you know, Daniel, back whenever you were there reading the writing on the wall to Belteshazzar, the last king of Babylon, I was there. Because then Darius the Mede came in that very night and wiped out Belteshazzar, or Belteshazzar. And it could very well have been, and this is speculation on my part, okay? 
It could very well be that Daniel was speaking to the one whose hand wrote on the wall. That's pretty neat, isn't it? Because he says, In the first year of Darius the Mede, even I stood to confirm and to strengthen him. So Darius come in and he conquered and he said, Woohoo, look at me, look how strong I am, look at how strong my empire is. And the angel saying, Yeah, I'm the one that did that. Right? And so he confirmed him, he strengthened him. And so basically we're seeing a chess match here. Okay? For anyone who played chess or for, for people like me that's a little simpler, uh, checkers, right? And so he's saying, yes, these pieces have moved on the board, but I'm letting you see the hands that move them. Okay? And he says, and now I will show thee the truth. Behold, there shall stand up yet three kings in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than they all. And by his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up against, or stir up all against the realm of Grecia. And so he says, I have uh, done my part to strengthen and put Darius the Mede in there. That was the one that was ruling at that time that Daniel saw uh, brought to power. This is in the third year of Darius. Okay. And so he says, there's going to be three more that come up after him. And then the fourth one is going to be far richer than they all. And so you have three kings in rapid succession after Darius. Uh, I won't say their names because I can't pronounce them. Okay? But history plays out and tells us who they were. The fourth one that was far re far richer than they all, uh, by the way, these three kings are talked about in Ezra. Ezra chapter 4, I think. The fourth one is Xerxes or Ahasuerus. Where do we hear that name at? Esther. And so the fourth one, this would have been after Daniel was gone, after he was dead, uh, probably 60, 70 years after this, that Ahasuerus would be the king. And he was the one, it says, that would be far richer than they all, or than they, the ones that was before him. And you read the book of Esther, and you read about Ahasuerus' riches that he had, right? Mm -hmm. And so he was the most wealthy of the Persians, and as a result, he's kind of at the top, at the top of the heap. He is wealthy, he is powerful, and so he attacks Greece. Isn't that what it says at the end of it? And he shall stir up all against the realm of Grecia. And so as he moves against Greece... Greece was not provoking him. He decided he wanted to extend his realm, extend his reach. And so he stirred up some of uh, the enemies of Greece that they had been oppressing and whatnot. And as he was coming against Greece, they said, we're going to jump in with you and we're going to attack Greece as well. And a little bit about Greece. Greece was more democratic. It was composed of Greek city-states. And so it was kind of a loose coalition uh, and not a strong central government. It wasn't. Uh, it wasn't a type of empire like Persia or like Babylon. And so, looking from the outside in, all these little Greek city states didn't look like much of a didn't look like much of a threat. And so Xerxes said, "Let's go in 
and expand our empire. Let's go and attack Greece and all of their region. And this is long before Alexander. This is long before the Greek empire where they weren't seen as being uh, any kind of a threat. And so he says, I'm going to go unprovoked, go and get them just to expand my empire. And guess what happened to him? He got beat. He attacked Greece and he failed. And so then we find that there's nothing mentioned about the successive Persian rulers because that is what toppled the Persian empire. They didn't cease to exist, but they lost their wealth and their power. And so basically he was sent home uh, to lick his wounds after he had gotten beat and they never rose back up again. In fact, I kind of wonder if maybe this attack upon Greece is something that helped to band the city-states together and strengthen their defenses and pave the way for Alexander the Great to come about 150 years later. And so at the end of uh, chapter number two, we have made it all the way up to Esther's husband, Hazuerus. One of the reasons why he was uh, so apt to destroy the Jews is because Haman had said he would pay into the king's treasury, uh, what was it, 10,000 pieces of silver or gold? What was I can't remember the amount. At that time, he had expended his resources on military campaigns, and he was trying to raise revenue, and he was trying to find ways to strengthen his empire because he was already in decline, okay? And so there's no mention of anyone after Xerxes, even though there were several rulers, but they were of no significance. The next one that comes up is in verse number three, and a mighty king shall stand up and shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. That's a mighty king of Greece. That is Alexander the Great that stood up. And it says with great dominion, Alexander the Great quickly conquered a huge area. He had a, a large dominion, a large domain. And it says that he did according to his will. Whatever he wanted, he had it. He was beating everyone. He was used to winning. Okay. And so that's what happened with Alexander the Great. That's what this prophecy is meaning. Remember, this what this prophecy was 200 years before Alexander the Great came. And so it said that he is going to stand up his kingdom. Uh, excuse me. Get back to verse 3. Uh, a mighty king shall stand up. He shall rule with great dominion, do according to his will. Verse 4. And when he shall stand up, his kingdom shall be broken. So while he is still standing, something's going to happen. His kingdom is going to be broken. He's going from victory to victory, and he is winning. He's doing according to his will, and then something happens. And it says it shall be divided toward the four winds of heaven and not to his posterity. So if you have a king, who's king after that king? Their children, right? That's the way that it normally works. But it says for this king, he's going to do according to his will. He's going to rise up in prominence. Suddenly he's going to be broken. His kingdom is going to be divided up and it will not go to his heirs. It won't go to his children. Instead, it says uh, it will be plucked up. Okay, it says it shall, shall be divided to the four winds of heaven. So four different ways, not to his posterity. 
And it says, nor according to his dominion. So the amount of land that he had ruled over is going to be diminished under the people who come after him. And it says, for his kingdom shall be plucked up even for those, even for others besides those. So some of these places that's been conquered are going to regain their uh, sovereignty, basically. They're going to emancipate themselves from the Greek empire. And so the domain's going to be smaller. It's going to be divided into four places. And history tells us Alexander the Great came on the scene fast. Uh, he became a ruler at about 20 years of age. And in 12 years, he conquered a huge amount of territory. He died suddenly at 32 years old, 32 years and eight months. And after he died, he had basically three people vying for taking over after him. He had uh, had an uncle, which was killed, and he had an illegitimate son by one of his lovers that got killed. And he had another son that I don't know that he even knew about that his wife was pregnant with that was born after he died that also got killed. And so within, I think, 12 or 13 years of Alexander's death, his entire family line had been wiped out. Everyone related to Alexander was dead. And his four generals fought over control of the, the empire, and they split it four ways, to the east, to the west, to the north, to the south. And the rest of the prophecies that we're going to see here primarily have to do with the north and the south. Okay? And history has all of this recorded for us 200 years after Daniel was alive that all of these things were fulfilled to the letter. How could he prophesy, how could he predict that a military campaign would go this way? That not only would he rise to prominence, he would be cut down in the zenith of his power, that even his posterity, his children, wouldn't get his kingdom, but it would be divided four ways amongst people who weren't related to him. You can't predict that, right? And so in verse 5, we start with the king of the south and the king of the north. And something that I need everyone to understand when we talk about the king of the south, king of the north, is everything in Scripture whenever we're talking about prophecy is oriented around Israel. So whenever you read north, it's saying above Israel. When you're reading south, below Israel. And so if you look at a map, I started to bring a map out here so you can see it. We're situated around the Mediterranean Sea, okay? And so you've got Israel right there on the edge. And around the top, you've, you would have had Syria. And around the bottom, you would have had Egypt, okay? Syria and Egypt around the Mediterranean. So if they were to attack one another whenever the king of the north is coming to the king of the south, or the king of the south is coming to the king of the north, where do they go through? They go through Israel. And so Israel becomes a main highway. It becomes a battleground. In a way, we could compare it to Ukraine in between Russia and Europe. Okay? And so it's that buffer zone in between. And so this is why this is important to Daniel and to Daniel's people. This isn't just talking about problems and countries around. It's talking about 
the ones that are going to have them in the middle, almost like the rope and tug of war. Okay? So in verse number five, it says, And the king of the south, the king of Egypt, shall be strong in one of his princes. Excuse me, I, I, the way that I read that, it doesn't really carry the right, uh, the right understanding of it. And the king of the south shall be strong in one of his princes. This is talking about two different uh, ones of Alexander's men. The king of the south and a prince of Alexander. Okay? Those are going to be the two strong ones. One's going to be the king of the south of Egypt. One's going to be king, king of the north over Syria. So those two will be strong. And the one, the one of his princes shall be strong above him and shall have dominion and his dominion shall be a great dominion. Okay, how many people did I lose there? A few. So what he is saying there is after Alexander's out of the way, two of his men are going to be the strongest ones. One's going to be over the south, one's going to be over the north, and the one over the north is going to have the most strength and the largest land area. Do you all see that in verse 5? He shall be strong above him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. You go back in history, that's recorded. Whenever Alexander fell, the king of the east and the west, they kind of faded away. The king of the north and the south started to absorb their dominion, but the king of the north got the largest dominion and had more power than the king of the south. And so now we start with this, this seesaw effect back and forth between the northern kingdom, southern kingdom, and Israel's the, uh, the pivot point in between, okay? And so verse 6, And in the end of years, they shall join themselves together. So they're fighting back and forth during this time, north and south, north and south, north and south. And in the end of years, they shall join themselves together. There's going to be a treaty. For the king's daughter of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement, but she shall not retain the power of her arm, neither shall she stand, nor his arm, but she shall be given up, and they that begat her, or excuse me, not that begat her, they that brought her, and he that begat her, and he that strengthened her in these times. So as these two kings were fighting with one another, they proposed a treaty, and the king of the south, since he wasn't as strong, the king of Egypt, he says, if you will make this agreement with me, I will give you my daughter to marry and a large dowry for peace between our nations. And that often plays out within diplomacy, intermarrying between states to bring peace. And so this is what it was saying in verse number six. At the end of the years, they shall join themselves together the king's daughter of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. And then there's a but. Because history tells us that the king of the Egypt, I've got names, if you want to see him, I can show you. But the king of Egypt sent his daughter, I believe her name was Bernice, up to the king of the north. But the king of the north was married. That's a bit of a problem. So the king of the south said, I will give you my daughter, I will give you this dowry, if you divorce your wife and disinherit your children, and the king of the north agrees to it, he divorces his wife, he puts her out, 
He disinherits his children, and he marries the king of the south's daughter, Bernice. But then the king of the south dies, and the king of the north decides he no longer wants the Egyptian bride. And so he sends her out and marries his first wife. This is history, guys. You can go back and read this, but it's told ahead of time. He marries his first wife, but we've all heard this, the, the saying that hell had no fury like a woman's scorn. The first wife wasn't happy about the way that he had handled things. She wanted to ensure that the disinherited children got the throne, so she poisoned him. She killed him. And she had Bernice, the king of the south's daughter, killed, along with their child killed, so that her son would be the heir to the throne. And that's all in verse number six. But she shall not retain the power of the arm, neither shall she stand, nor his arm, the king of the south, but she shall be given up. And they that brought her, that's her entourage or cortege or whatever there, they were also slaughtered. And they that brought her, and he that begot her, and he that strengthened her in these times. Then we get to trouble in verse number seven. But out of a branch of her roots, that was the that was Bernice, that was the the princess of Egypt that married the guy and then got throughout and killed and all these things. A branch of her root shall one stand up in his estate. So her root, her parents, a branch out of that root, a sibling. She had a brother. And the brother wasn't very happy with the way the king of the north had treated his family and killing his sister and all these things that happened. So the king of the 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 brother that's now king down in Egypt decides to come up and kill the wife that poisoned her husband and her son. Like soap opera, right? So these are all historical facts that Daniel learned before they happened. But out of a branch of her root shall one stand up in his estate, which shall come with an army and shall enter into the fortress of the king of the north and shall uh, deal against him and shall prevail. You killed my sister, prepared to die. <laughs> Sorry, that's a movie line. But anyway, so that's what happened. And so he came up and fought against uh, the king of the north against Syria. Verse 8, and shall also carry captives into Egypt, their gods and their princes, and with their precious vessels of silver and of gold, and he shall continue more years than the king of the north. So history tells us that whenever this attack took place, that he came up, he raided the temples, he raided the the treasuries and everything, and he took something like, a, I think it was a thousand talents of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, out of the north, took back to Egypt, and also recaptured their gods of gold and of silver that Syria had taken previously during battles, and took them back to their temples, and they had a huge celebration. Okay? Isn't this messed up? Okay. 
But it says that he shall continue more years than the king of the north. In other words, he went back home and he kept the peace longer than the guy from the north did. The north guy was the first one to attack again. Okay, So there was a time after he beat the north that there was quiet, but then the north was going to strike another time. So the king of the south shall come into his kingdom, the king of the north, come down from, uh, from Syria, come through Israel, come down to attack Egypt, and Egypt saw them coming and soundly defeated them and sent them back home. That's what verse number nine tells us. King of the south shall come into his kingdom and shall return into his own land. He went back home. But his sons, see this king, and I could—I probably should go through the names, okay, but I can't pronounce all of them. So this king of the, the north was unsuccessful at coming down and attacking Egypt, but his sons decided that they would try after he was gone. And so he has two sons. Verse number 10. But his sons shall be stirred up and shall assemble a multitude of great forces. And one shall certainly come and overflow and pass through. Then shall he return and be stirred up even to his fortress. There's something interesting that takes place in this verse. It starts out with sons. Then it goes to one, he, and his. And history tells us that these two sons of this king who failed to come against Egypt turned away from Egypt and they went and conquered surrounding lands, amassed wealth, amassed armies, and gathered things up to prepare to go against Egypt. But during those battles, one of his sons died. Both of them amassed the wealth, but one of them died and only one of them came against Egypt. And so in one shall certainly come and overflow and pass through. Then shall he return and be stirred up even to his fortress. And so this is what happened. The one son that survived came down, and this time he attacked Egypt, and he prevailed. Verse 11, And the king of the south shall be moved with choler, and shall come forth and fight with him, even with the king of the north, and he shall set forth a great multitude but the multitude shall be given into his hand. And so the king of the north brings this great army, this great multitude, comes against the Egypt, against the king of the south, and in spite of having his great multitude, he still gets slaughtered. His army still loses, even though he has this great multitude. And it says in verse 12, And when he hath taken away the, the multitude, his heart shall be lifted up, and he shall cast down many ten thousands, but he shall not be strengthened by it. So what happened in this verse is that whenever, <clears throat> excuse me, whenever he came down and the king of the north came down, lost the battle, the king of Egypt was used to being the one who lost. He won the one time. He got all the gold and the riches. The king of the north had been the one that usually had been winning, right? And so now he's gotten the upper hand twice. And it says that he his heart's going to be increased in him. He's going to be proud. He's going to be arrogant. 
And it's at that time that he passes through Israel, and record tells us that at that time he slaughtered many of the people of the Jews in Israel, with him being lifted up. And it says he shall not be strengthened by it, even though he got the victory over the north. And he is going through, he's proud, he's arrogant, he's slaughtering people in between. He's not increasing because of it. He won the battle and stopped. Usually what you do if you win the battle, you continue going, right? But he won the battle, he stopped, he retired back to Egypt, and he allowed the north to have peace for a season. And so what is Syria doing while Egypt is enjoying their time of peace and of prosperity? What's the north doing? They're regrouping. See, their multitude was slaughtered, and so they needed to build up a new army. And so they have something like 10, 15 years where they are building up a bigger army, where they are amassing wealth. And then in verse number 12, it says, when he had taken away the multitude, or verse number 13, excuse me, for the king of the north shall return and shall set forth a multitude greater than the former and shall certainly come after certain years with a great army and with much riches that they had amassed during that peacetime by going out to the surrounding areas around them and building up the wealth and building up the armies. So the Egyptian king was foolish in allowing them just to be beaten and go home. It just allowed them a chance to regroup and to, to build back. And so in verse number 14, it says, In those times there shall uh, many stand up against the king of the south. Also, the robbers of thy people shall exalt themselves to establish the vision, but they shall fall. While this king of the north was amassing his wealth and his riches, the previous king that had beaten them died. And it left his son, which was four years old at the time, it left his son to be the king. And with his son being the king at four years old and having co-regents with him, people trying to uh, get their way in for different power and things like this, things that was going on in Egypt at the time were a bit chaotic. There was a lot of backstabbing, a lot of different things happening. And we see in verse 14, and in those times there shall many stand up against the king of the south. They didn't have a good ruler there. They didn't have anyone to really lead. So everyone was jockeying for position to try to get out in front. And it talks about the robbers of thy people. So if he says robbers of thy people, whose people? Who's the angel talking to? Daniel. So the robbers of thy people shall exalt themselves to establish the vision. And what he's talking about with the robbers of his people is that there were Jews that were uh, siding with uh, siding with Syria, even though Egypt was the one that was in charge. And so they were under oppression of the Egyptians at this time. And so some of the Jews were double crossing Egypt because they said, we want freedom. We don't want to be down here in Egypt. So we're going to side with Syria and root for Syria and hope Syria wins so that we can escape Egypt. 
And this was one of those cases of out of the frying pan and into the fire. Because Syria was much worse to them than Egypt ever was. So they made a bad allegiance here. And so that was the robbers of thy people exalt themselves to establish the vision. Their, their vision that they were wanting was freedom, was liberty, was a Jewish state again, not hindered by Egypt or by Syria. And it says, but they shall fall. And so these people who had exalted themselves ends up not just failing, but falling. And this is talking about their death. They got slaughtered as a result of it. And so the king of the north shall come and cast them out and take the most fenced cities and the arms of the south shall not withstand, neither his chosen people, neither shall there be any strength to withstand. So what happened is the king of Syria got his armies, came down against Egypt, trying to reclaim their land and trying to over, overflow them. And where it says they cast them out, there were walled cities. They set up sieges against them. And the way that would work is they would have the armies on the outside and they would allow no one to leave the cities. And they basically let the people starve to death. Okay. And so what does it say in that verse? It says, uh, they're cast them out and take the most fenced cities and the arms of the South shall not withstand neither his chosen people, neither shall there be any strength to withstand. So this is the idea of them being wearied, wore away, losing strength. It was a famine. It was a lack of food. These people lost, not by uh, being defeated in battle, but because they waited till the strength was gone and overflowed them. And not only them, but whenever it talks about his chosen people, once again, we're talking about the ones that had sided with him and had went along with him and so those who had put their eggs in his basket are also falling to their doom because of this. And it says, he shall also, we're talking about the king of the north, right? He shall also set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom. Did I skip a verse? Yes. yes, I did skip a verse. Verse 16. But he that cometh against him shall do according to his own will. And none shall stand before him, and he shall stand in the glorious land, which by his hand shall be consumed. What is the glorious land? Israel. We're talking about the Bible, right? The glorious land is Israel. So the king of Syria is coming down against Egypt. He shall stand in the glorious land. That means that his army set up camp there. They stayed there. And imagine having armies of tens or hundreds of thousands of men camped out in Israel. What do they do to the resources? They eat it up. They consumed them, right? And so this is what actually happened. Um, let me look here. This would have happened Antiochus III, if you want to name. Conquered Egypt, and then he continued in Israel and from that point onward, Syria controlled Israel, where the formerly pro-Egyptian party was consumed. 
So there was a group that was for Syria down in Egypt, and they said, okay, we're going to overthrow Egypt, and then whenever Syria came, Syria was worse than Egypt ever was, and didn't just wipe out the uh, the loyal Israelites down in Egypt, but they wiped out the Israelites in Israel. And so this, like I said, all happened. Go back to history books and read through it. But it happened after Daniel prophesied it, hundreds of years afterward. Okay, so we're just almost done. I told you it was going to be a history lesson, right? Yeah. And so the glorious land would be consumed. Uh, he shall also set his face to enter. So we're still the king of the north. This is still Syria. He shall set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom and upright ones with him. Thus shall he do, and he shall give him the daughter of women, corrupting her. But he shall, or but excuse me, but she shall not stand on his side, neither before him. Okay, this gets into another uh, situation like Bernice. Remember Bernice earlier? We get in soap opera territory here. Because what happens here is that the king decides, we need another marriage. Need another alliance through marriage here. And so the king of the north wants to take his army and overflow Egypt, and it's not working. And so they decide that... Um, as he's hoping to conquer Egypt, he wants to do it instead of by battle, he wants to do it by trickery, basically. Okay? And so he says, I will give you my daughter for your son to marry. The king of his, or excuse me, the king of Syria, the king of Egypt. And so he has the plan that he will send his young daughter to Egypt to marry the young prince. And then whenever she is older, she's going to be able to corrupt the prince and be able to work almost as a spy, as a double agent here, to overthrow the Egyptians from the inside. And so she would have been, uh, it says here, the daughter of women. That's the idea that she was still young. She was still under her uh, mother's care, under the care of uh, tutors at that time, okay? And it says, he's going to give the daughter of women corrupting her. He's thinking, I'm going to send her there to turn against her husband and her father-in-law. But his plan backfires because it says, but she shall not stand on his side, neither be for him. So he sends his young daughter down to Egypt to mess things up politically. Whenever she gets down there, she turns against her father and actually tries to get the Romans to attack her, or no, the Greeks to attack her father. So that's what happens with that. And so uh, if you're curious, her name was Cleopatra, not the one that we think of. But her name was Cleopatra, and as I said, she was loyal to her husband, not to her father. And so verse number 18, After this shall he turn his face unto the isles, and shall take many, 
So since his plan to Egypt backfired, he decides to go out and try to take some of the Greek isles in different places. And it says, but a prince for his own behalf shall cause the reproach offered by him to cease. Without his own reproach, he shall cause it to turn upon him. So as he's attacking the isles and going other places other than Egypt, this um, this prince of his own behalf was Rome. And the ruler of Rome was to his, would have been to his west, right? And he was expanding his empire to the west, and he got too far and he awoke a sleeping giant. And so whenever he got onto some territory that the Romans was interested in, they came out against him and they sent him away. And it says that that would cause the reproach offered by him to cease. Without his own reproach, he shall cause it to turn upon him. So the Roman guy is going to attack the Syrian guy. And the Syrian is going to be put to the worst, and Rome is going to be not hurt by this whole battle. And this is what happened. They did. They tried to extend their empire westward, ran into Roman territory, and then Rome, with that, was now provoked to start coming eastward. Who's the next empire after the Greeks? The Romans. And so they're provoking the next empire to start its ascent here. And this would have brought us uh, close to the beginning of the Roman Empire. We would have been somewhere around 200 AD at this time. Then he shall turn his face toward the fort of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. And so after the Romans beat him, they put him and his land under subjection, caused them to make restitution and repayments for the war that they had been provoked into unnecessarily and made them pay a tribute. So now Syria has gotten themselves under tribute to Rome. It was just fighting between Syria and Egypt, right? Now they brought Rome in the mix and Syria has been put down now. Rome has now got them under tribute. And whenever it says that he turned his face to his own fort and to his own land, he began shaking his own land down, trying to get enough money to pay the Roman tribute. He started going through and taking the idols out of the temple, pulling the gold down out of the temples, doing all this, just trying to get enough money to appease Rome so Rome doesn't come through and wipe them out. And it is during that time, as he's going about trying to get taxes and trying to raise money, he tries to attack a temple and take all their things to basically pilfer this temple. And the people of that town doesn't take too well to it. So you know what they do? They kill him. And so what does it say there? He will stumble and fall and not be found. He went raising taxes. He went out to the country folk, and the country folk killed him and buried him in the bogs. Right? That's kind of my, that's kind of my version of it, okay? But that's what happened in history. He provoked the Romans. The Romans put him under tribute. He tried to raise the tribute from his people, and his people ended up killing him from them trying to get money. And so our very last one in verse number 20, 
Then shall stand up in his estate a raiser of taxes. Why is he raising taxes? He's got nothing to do. He can't fight battles. He can't win anything. He's just trying to keep Rome off his back. And so he's raising taxes. And so shall raise up, so shall stand up in his estate a raiser of taxes in the glory of the kingdom. But within few days, he shall be destroyed, neither in anger nor in battle. And so what ended up happening to him is he wasn't a good leader. All he knew how to do was try to milk the people for their money. And so he got poisoned. Destroyed neither in anger nor in battle. They poisoned him and he died. And so we've re we went through 20 verses of this. I haven't counted up how many different people this is, how many different empires this is. It's an awful mess. Could you imagine Daniel writing this and saying, you sure about this, God? This is going to happen? And then could you imagine being the Jewish people reading it about the time that the north and the south is going back and forth across them? And they said, oh, did you hear? There's a peace treaty. The the north king's marrying the, the south king's daughter and all the, uh-oh, well, we know how that's going to turn out. Right? And so it went down to households, to the way that they died, to these marriages that didn't work out. And then, and do you see how concise this prophecy is to where, honestly, these points that I'm talking about, the names that I've got written down here and the dates that I have written down, whether the people believe in God or not, whether they're against God or not, they will still... Uh, they have no choice but to accept for a fact that these things happened. They are a fact of history. And they can say, yes, that happened. Yes, there was this God that gave his daughter and then all these, they happened. It's a fact of history. The only argument they have against it is, well, it couldn't have been written whenever it says it was written. But then there's plenty of proof that it did. So what I'm saying here is, God revealed these things to Daniel hundreds of years before they happened down to pretty specific details that we can pinpoint in history. And so for that, we can take a look at God's word and we can say, it is in fact God's word. This is a supernatural book. This isn't something that men have came up with. We can look at it and say, God knows what he's doing. He's in charge because this angel is saying, just letting you know what we're going to do ahead of time. Not, I hope it gets accomplished, or we're going to try to do this, or this is the way we want this to go. He says, this is what's going to happen. And so God's got it programmed out. He knows what's going to happen before it happens. And it will happen. And so we can look at future prophecy. Whenever we're talking about the tribulation period and the Antichrist and Christ's second coming and all of these things is going to happen they will be fulfilled just as surely and just as precisely as these prophecies that we read in Daniel were. Okay? If he fulfilled those, he will fulfill the rest of them. And so with that, we have no reason to question God. We have no reason to question his word. And honestly, we have no reason to worry about the future because it's firmly in God's hands. Right? So with all of that, You've had your history lesson for the night, right? You want to have any questions or any comments on this tonight?
I bet some of those girls wish they would have known what Daniel wrote down ahead of time. Like, no, I don't want my marriage life to turn out that way. I don't want to be your pawn. Well, they would never would have read it. They wouldn't have been aware of it. No, no, but if they had, uh, they would have said, oh my God, God would never have done this. Mm-hmm. God would never have said this. Never prophesied this. But I, will, but I will say that there are places in Scripture that recorded specific things like this that were told to the people that it pertained to, and they believed it, Okay. And an example of that is um, whenever, I think it was whenever one of Alexander the Great's uh, generals came up against Israel. It was Alexander himself, okay. Whenever Alexander the Great came up against Israel and was going to conquer it, one of the priests came out to Alexander the Great, showed him Daniel, like Daniel chapter number nine. And that wasn't mine. Anyway, showed him the one that talked about Alexander the Great and about his kingdom and all those things. And Alexander the Great actually fell down to the earth, worshiped God, turned his army away, and left Israel alone. Similar with Cyrus was the king of Persia. He was the one that ordered the rebuilding of, uh, of Israel. And I believe they took the writings and things and said, hey, here, this is talking about you. It said before you were ever even born that you were going to become the king. And that played into him releasing the people to go back. So there is some of that that goes on. But by and large, these prophecies were made. And even whenever the people were fulfilling them, they didn't realize they were fulfilling them at the time. It was one of those things that people could look back on after it happened and say, hey, that was written down already. Hey, that sounds just like what I'm reading here. Wait. Yeah, that is specific because like, like now people are like, oh, the wars, rumors of wars, but we are here now. But that was going on all the time, you know, mm-hmm. so that is not specific, but mm-hmm. these things are very specific. Mm-hmm. I like one maybe prophecy one, we are already alive. It's like Israel, but, you know, like you mm-hmm. have Israel again. Yeah. That is very specific, you know, but, you know. <laughs> Well, and that's one of them that's gotten the skeptics as well, just the fact that Israel is in their own land now because for almost 2,000 years, 1,900 years, Israel did not exist as a nation. The Jews were not permitted in the land. And so people would read through the Bible and say, it keeps talking about Israel being in the land, but they haven't existed for all this time. Either that's an allegory or it doesn't mean what it sounds like it means or the Bible was wrong or something. And then all of a sudden, the Jews are back in Israel and they're a land. He was like, oh, this makes sense. Okay. Another thing that we can take away from this, it's extremely simple and I'll be done, is for those who claim to be prophets today, for those who claim to predict the future, do they do it with that kind of accuracy and precision? No. 
because God's not sending prophets anymore, but the devil sure is. But they can't do it like God. Okay, so let's go ahead and we'll go to the Lord in prayer. We'll call it tonight. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. Lord, we do thank you for your word. Now just pray that uh, you'd be with us, Lord, and help us, Lord, with this this passage that we went through tonight. I, I know that uh, there's a lot of history, a lot of things going back and forth and whatnot, and it's easy for us to just kind of tune out and not pay attention to different things or just kind of look past it, Lord. But Lord, help us to see it for as amazing as what it really is and uh, how you are showing yourself through your word that you're firmly in charge. You know what's going to happen. You know what's going on, and we can trust you. We can put our our life in your hands, Lord, and we know that uh, you know everything that's going to happen. Every hair on our head is numbered, and Lord, these, these things like this just uh, build our faith and encourage us, Lord, as we see these things in your word. We know that your word is truly your word, that it is more than just some book, Lord, but it is divinely inspired. It is straight from your heart and from your mind and from your mouth, Lord. And Lord, we just thank you so much for all that you do. Thank you that we have the privilege to hold it in our hands and see these things. We may, in all the things that we're looking forward to, we may not be able to to uh, see it as it's happening and what's going on, but Lord, as we look back, we see how you've done so many things, and Lord, we trust that you're going to fulfill all these future prophecies just the same as you have the past ones. Lord, we do love you and we thank you for all you do. In Jesus' name I pray. Name now.